We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farajasat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before as the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Thank you, Farah. And hello, podcast listeners. This week, we were joined by Andrew J. Scott and Linda Gratton to discuss their book, the New Long Life, a framework for flourishing in a changing world. And they spoke to Tom Whipple, science editor of The Times, all about questions like, what will happen when we live to 100 and beyond? Will we still be working? Will we be playing golf? Or maybe something else? And how, when our physical technologies are advancing at such rapid speeds, can our social technologies ever keep pace? So it's a really interesting conversation about what ageing societies will look like in the future, and we hope you enjoy it. 
Hello, I'm Tom Whipple, science editor at The Times newspaper, and I'm here with Andrew J. Scott and Linda Gratton. So your book is about a problem, quite a pleasant problem. The problem is that we're, we're living too long and that our technology, as, you, as your thesis puts it, has, has run ahead of our society. Talk us through the, the, I guess, the impetus for this and what you hope to achieve. So uh, we wrote a previous book called The 100-Year Life, which is about how we adapt to longer lives. On average, people are living longer and they're healthier for longer. And one of the questions we kept sort of saying, we kept getting asked was, well, where are all the jobs going to come from? And so we felt that there are these two big trends, uh, technology and longevity. And it's interesting. We always talk about them in very impersonal terms, like, you know, robots and aging. But this is really about us and our lives. And we have an opportunity, I think, to seize the advantages that technology is bringing, which is where machines become ever better at being machines, we can become ever better at being humans. So the question, though, is how do we seize the opportunities? Because technology and longevity are not destiny. But if we don't approach them in the right way, they could lead to bad rather than good outcomes. So what we wanted to do was first start a wider social narrative to get people thinking about these issues helping them prepare for the future, but also starting to sort of raise a social debate to make sure that technology and longevity are developed not by markets and not by governments, by what people themselves want. Let's, let's start with the technology and the technology achievements, I guess, and, and, and problems. You, you, you talk about four laws, and I think most of us would be familiar with the first of them, or, but we might like a recap, Moore's Law. But there's Gilders, Metcalfs and Varians, and they come together to... Define, I guess, the situation we're in now. Maybe you could explain a bit about that. L- Linda, can you, you talk us through the, the technology problem? Then I think we'll go to Andrew to talk about what's happening with life expectancy. Well, well, you know, one of the exciting things about technology is that we've been incredibly in- ingenious in terms of the rate of technological change. And we can see this during the pandemic to the extent to which technology has completely changed the way that we live, the way that we relate to each other, the way we buy, the way we eat even. And so in a sense, we've all become digital natives. The challenge really is that technology, and I think we're going to see this more during the pandemic, is uh, going to increase automation. We're going to have increased automation over the next couple of years, in part because of the recession that's coming. And that means that all of us have got to learn how to use technology, particularly in terms of our social interactions with each other, but also really how technology is going to change our work. Um, There are many tasks that we currently do which can be automated, which will be automated. So one of the questions that we bring up in The New Long Life is how do we develop the skills that allow us to flourish as humans. The skills, for example, of empathy, of creativity, uh, of insight, of innovation. And that, I think, is one of the real challenges we face. Yeah, yeah. And and Andrew, in terms of... Talk us through where we are with, with life expectancy. Um, I mean, you... you you, you talk about how st- statisticians historically have underestimated life expectancy gains. And you also talk tantalisingly of this idea of escape velocity, that at the moment we gain a certain number of months for each year we're, we're, for each year we're alive, life expectancy seems to increase across the, the board by a few months. And, and you talk about the possibility of maybe even life expectancy increasing by a year for every year humanity goes forwards. But... Uh, 
How long should I expect my children to live for? So, uh, you know, your children have got a very good chance to live to 100 if you listen to what the ONS predict. Uh, and if you listen to some of the scientists, they're probably well beyond that. And even more impressively, if the scientists working on longevity are correct, they might not just live to 100, they might live healthily to 100, which, of course, is fantastic. I mean, there's a lot of talk about an ageing society, that there's just more old people as the birth rate declines. And in general, that's seen as a negative. And I think... That's unfortunate because we should really be celebrating more people living longer. But I think the trouble with focusing on an ageing society is it reveals our negative concepts of age, but also it misses something even more important because an ageing society is about the structure of the population, fewer young people, more old. But if you flip it round and look at it from an individual perspective, the really big thing that's happened, particularly over the last 50, 60 years, is that your life expectancy has increased at every age. So really, on average, we're living longer and you're healthier for longer. So at every age, you've got more time ahead of you. And it's not obvious to me that that should be called an ageing society. You know, the average Brit, for instance, in according to the government's data on mortality statistics, the average Brit last year had never been so old, but never had so many years left to live. And I think that's a really, really profound thought because ageing, we inevitably of ageing is about end of life. But longevity is about having more time. It's about how you maximize that malleability of age so that you live as healthily and productive and as well as possible. Um, but that notion that everyone of every age has more time ahead of them requires, I think, a very different way of thinking about every stage of life. And that's obviously one of the key themes. Now, why are we in this situation? Well, this notion that age is malleable, that, that, that actually chronological age, which is how we tend to think of age, is actually not a very good indicator. First of all, it, it fails to capture improvements in how we age biologically. And that's really what we mean by age being malleable. We, we found ways of slowing down the rate at which we age biologically. And that's through public health and social policies and our own individual behavior like exercise and diet. And of course, as your question referred to, there's lots of fascinating research going on at the moment because as the population gets older, what we're seeing is a lot of diseases non-communicable diseases, things like arthritis, dementia, etc. And all of them, including cancer, are kind of strongly linked to age. So we're seeing a really interesting shift in medical research to say, well, let's not think about individual diseases. Can we actually slow down the aging process? Because if we can, then we will not just get improvements in life expectancy, but healthy life expectancy as we get rid of these horrible diseases of dementia, cancer and arthritis. And of course, what's striking about COVID is actually the fortality rate of COVID with age exactly mimics all causes of death. So COVID seems to be connected to age in the way that so many other things are as well. So that's why, you know, COVID accelerates not just our use of a technology and how we work, but also brings to the fore this issue of an aging society. And this is, Linda, this is in some sense is wonderful, as it's wonderful that we've got all of this technology, but it does also present us with a problem. On the one hand, you, you, you describe lovely, beautifully in the book how the water level is currently lapping at the shores of the human competencies of translation, of investment decisions, of speech recognition, of driving, of all of these things that currently employ lots of people. On the other hand, you've got this situation where people are going to hang around needing employment or or indolence for significantly longer than they ever have. How, how, how is it that we square these? How do we turn these into 
the positives that I guess they should be rather than the significant societal problems that they currently appear to be to me. You know, many of the things that you've talked about, Tom, are about ingenuity. They're about how we as humans have invented ways to live longer, invented uh, technologies that allow us to work and live differently. And what Andrew and I are saying in The New Long Life is that we need to have now equal measures of social ingenuity. And that's really about how we decide to live our lives. And so let let me look at that from two ways. Firstly, what does it mean for an individual? And secondly, what does it mean for society? Let, Let me very briefly say what that means for individuals. It means that we have to invent a new way of living, a new way of narrating our lives, a new story for ourselves, a new way of saying we're going to live longer at a time of huge technological change. And so we have to think differently about our traditional life stages. You know, we have to think differently about our possible selves. So we have to build, in a sense, we have to invent a new narrative for our life. Secondly, we absolutely need to move to exploring and learning right the way through our lives. Um, The times when, you know, full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement, the three-stage life was in place, is clearly not working for us. So we have to be much more ingenious about how do we explore and learn right the way through our lives. And finally... You know, family structures were sort of set uh, in after the Industrial Revolution uh, in terms of how families and work uh, managed. And again, we need so much ingenuity uh, and innovation around what does a family look like? How does it work uh, in in terms of the balance between the work that people, member, family members are doing and what they're doing in the home in terms of their caring responsibilities. Of course, interestingly, COVID has accelerated many of the trends that we saw in play already. It's thrown a lot of our habits up in the air. And as those land again, what would be really important is just to see how we decide to change the way that we work and how we use this petri dish of experiments that we're currently experiencing to really set the course for the next period of our lives. There's also, by the way, real implications for governments, for society, for corporations and for education. But we can come on to that later. It's also, I think it's really interesting how you sort of put it because, yeah, we could, you know, we could face some real problems if we don't do that right. But I think, you know, our message is that we're about to see a pretty fundamental change in the nature of work through technology, akin to what we saw with industrial revolution. That's happening at the same time as we're having to adapt to the gains in life expectancy that have already happened, let alone what may occur. So if we carry on doing what we're currently doing, it's a problem. And you use that phrase, people just hanging around. But of course, why would you hang around? And of course, if you've got more time, let's flip it back and say, Tom, do you ever feel at the end of the day, I just had too much time today? You know, I just didn't know what to do with myself. So if life expectancy has got longer, isn't there a way we could use that time? So, you know, again, we could do these things in a bad way. And if we carry on doing what we've always done, you can feel this anxiety and stress because clearly our previous ways of living, our current social institutions and government policies I'm not going to work given the life expectancy we're going to face and the technology that's coming along. So we do have to change. That's kind of frightening. But at the same time, how do we make it work for us? Because ultimately, smarter technologies, longer, healthier lives should be a good thing. So this is, I mean, this is 
what I was thinking reading your book and going through it was continuously I thought how how has the pandemic changes how has this speeded up the changes you're talking about you talk about online learning you talk about flexible working yeah all of these things I mean I we're currently in our houses I'm avoiding children I'm you know next door there are students who aren't in lectures how are things going to change and how should they change well the pandemic has absolutely accelerated some of the trends that we saw in play anyway trends as you say like working from home working flexibly working virtually um, they've also accelerated family trends you know we're now spending more time at home with our families perhaps more than we want to but we're certainly we're certainly there so there's no question that there's been an acceleration I think that we're all on a journey in terms of what is it we want after this and you know one of the questions that we asked in the book was what sort of a world do we want and we asked that question before the pandemic that was a question that we thought technology and longevity was already pushing us towards but actually as we sit in the midst of this pandemic this question of what sort of a world do we want becomes very very crucial we talk in the book about how uh, it's very difficult to imagine the lives of others you know the that those curtains are drawn in, in front of our eyes. We don't know how it is to be others. But actually, the pandemic has let us into the lives of so many other people. I think we're much clearer now about how we live, but also how others live. I think the other thing that's interesting, I mean, COVID is this huge multidimensional shock that affects so many different things. And it clearly has accelerated the use of technology, as you said, in education and how we work. Um you know, to a degree, I think is not focused enough. COVID also is about an aging society. We've kind of created the economy to save lives and mainly older people. So that challenge of how we keep a healthy population and healthy economy is at the fore of all of this. But it's really interesting that by and large, we have supported this, you know, worst UK recession for 300 odd years to save lives because that does tell us actually where our values lie, which is healthy living. And I think, you know, that to me is the really big outcome of all of this, because then how do we restructure when we come out of this to deal with these trends that says GDP is important, but actually making sure people feel safe and secure and within their community is what we really, really value. And I think that's uh, the heart of what we uh, focus on in uh, the book. So the other thing I think that's come out of this for me is it's a stress test. It's accelerated trends. It's a stress test that reveals how many of us are vulnerable to sudden shocks and losing their job. It's shown who can work with technology and who can't. And of course, there's a huge income and education bias uh, around that. It's also revealing around the world which governments are capable of keeping people safe and healthy for long in a way that isn't encouraging for the UK. So there's a huge agenda that's going to come out from this. You know, I think that's a good thing. My only worry is that given we've accelerated down this path of technology, I hope we don't get stuck with sort of cheap technology rather than good technology. Uh, you know, online learning can be a great thing, but let's make sure we really know how to use it before we suddenly everyone has it. Uh, and similarly, we might find firms using automation to cut costs rather than because it really enhances productivity. And I think that's the worry for me as we come out of this. And I think, you know, in terms of what the uh, what's been revealed by the pandemic, 
I think we've also realised how much we care for each other and how much we miss each other. We've been running polls, Tom, right from the beginning of this, where we've polled hundreds of people pretty much on a weekly basis. And very early on, they said, actually, the technology is working fine for us. What we're really missing is our colleagues. And now people are saying what we're really missing is our friends and our family. And, you know, as we sort of hartle down a technological possible life, it's easy to imagine that technology will become the dominant feature of our of our future world. But actually, what I think the pandemic has shown to Andrew and I is just how important human relations are. You know, as we start to move back to the office, what will we do to be sure that we still remain innovative, excited, empathic? What do we do now with our families, with our communities and with our neighbourhoods? And I think that part of our personal agenda will be about how we build stronger relationships with each other. Two of the themes within that that came out in your book... One was your you talk about friendships as things that you would invest in in the same way as you'd invest in a pension, and that in this three stage life where you're you're poor but learning at the beginning, you're busy but earning in the middle, and you're relaxing at the end. We sort of the, the, in the busy but earning phase, we don't invest in the friendships and then but then the second strand that you mentioned is you're very very pro the idea of intergenerational friendships and it not just being hanging out with your peer group um what what, why is that so the three-stage life where which you mean you know first stage of education then a sort of focus on a career and then retirement led to a really strong degree of age segregation it kind of reduced the the minglings between different groups. And actually, I think one sort of manifestation of that was these generational labels, these baby boomers, millennials, Gen X, that, you know, do have some insights, but it often take on the form of like a demographic astrology. You know, if, if you were born between these dates, this then fixes your character. Uh, and I think that's a sign that we just don't mix as much as we used to intergenerationally. We know that diversity makes for better performance in companies. We know that across human history, there's a great richness flowing from the, um, say the grandparents to the, uh, the children. Um, but we've become more and more age segregated. And I think that's a real loss in humanity because we know that older people benefit from mixing with younger people. It keeps them more creative and, and changing. And, and then we also know that younger people benefit from older people in a form of mentoring. And we just need to encourage that much more. It's something that I think we've lost because we started to think of age in a very chronological-based way, which gets in the way of seeing people as just people. And I think, you know, picking up this question of friendship, we uh, we were interested in, a, in, in one of the few longitudinal studies of human lives, which started with people right from the beginning of their student life. And and teams of researchers followed them right the way through their life. And one of the questions they asked as they watched them through their life is, what makes for a happy life? And obviously, they looked at how much money they had uh, and so on. And to be sure, being poor is hard. So I'm not suggesting here, and, and neither would Andrew, that finances aren't important to us. But what was really fascinating about that research is just how important friendships were. And one of the points that we make is that 
friendships are an investment and to make it sound like that makes it sound you know as if you don't you're not really thoughtful about it you're just simply investing in friendships but actually fundamentally when you think about your own personal resilience particularly in moments like this friendships are incredibly important to you and it's easy to let them go it's easy not to spend time with others particularly if you have long commutes and you have very little time outside of work so what, one of the reasons we love the idea of more flexible working and we love the idea of being able to work from home on occasions is they provide you with more time potentially to build your, your friendships, to devote time to your friends and indeed to devote time to your family and to your communities. And these turn out to be, as many of us have found in this pandemic, incredibly important sources of resilience. And I think what's interesting too on this theme, and I'm glad you picked up on it, because it's sort of friendships, it's relationships, it's communities. It's that thing, if machines are becoming more machine-like, how do we become more human-like? And of course, relationships are key to what we're about. But I think, you know, the other thing that's interesting, we're seeing a lot about identity at the moment and how important identity is. But if you look at longevity and technology combined, it's going to lead to a longer career with more stages where you do different roles. You've got technology, which is also going to disrupt what jobs you do and more importantly, how you do that job. And it does mean that people's careers can be very different. And in that, you know, sort of iconic three-stage life, your identity was your job. Many of your relationships will come from the firm. Uh, whereas this world where you're working from home, sometimes working in the office, you might be in working in the gig economy for one part of your career, your identity is going to be uh, very different from that of my father's who spent his whole life working in one industry and with two or three employers. So relationships will be part of both your sense of identity and purpose, as well as navigating you through that life journey. I think that's probably a good time to take a break. And let's talk afterwards about your plans for education. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, I'm Farah Jassat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. So a, a big part of your, your manifesto for a, a, a longer, better life concerns education. And there, there were two passages that, that really resonated with me. The first was where you said, if you ask someone how healthy they are now and they told you that they ran a marathon 20 years ago, you wouldn't find that answer particularly informative. Yet with a person's education, we that's exactly what we do. We accept as relevant and informative the response that they studied economics 20 years ago. Um, and the second one, which uh, to my shame also quite resonated, was that when you said it, it could be that education is costly to achieve and provides no useful skills, but that the course itself has value because if high ability individuals do the course, then that is a signal for employers that it's sort of a very expensive brand to get. How do those two ideas inform what you think we should be doing with education? Well, those two questions come together is sort of really about skill. What's the relationship between skills, learning and education and how much of it do we get from our educational system? There's all sorts of surveys that sort of suggest that firms find that, uh, uh, you know, people graduating from university haven't got enough skills for a job. And uh, I never quite know what the right answer to that should be, because I don't think universities should be there fully to train people for the next job. I think firms have some responsibility on that. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole bunch of issues of how does our educational system compete? And the, the signaling theory you referred to is a standard one in economics, which says the whole point of an education is that it's, uh, it should only be something pursued by those who have the, the skills to uh, succeed, uh, and they should do something that isn't useful as a way of screening out those who uh, um, don't have those skills. So it's sort of education as a certificate. And I think we also say in the book, you know, what really matters is it having a degree certificate from Harvard or having three years of a Harvard education. That's another way of looking at the problem. Clearly, we have a huge challenge because with longer lives, we're going to have to be learning for longer if we want to keep our uh, job skills up to date. And technology is also going to demand we learn different things. And although there's much focus on how many jobs we lost through technology, I think that's not really the biggest issue. I think technology is going to change what you do in your job, even if you don't lose your job. 
So there's this huge need to upgrade our skills. When the Industrial Revolution came along, we massively increased education, basic education, so that everyone went to school at 12, 14, 16, and now 18. So we're in a race with technology, and if education can keep ahead of technology, then by and large, people are okay. But given the level of education we have now in that first stage of life, given how many people are now going to university and college, clearly this is going to have to be around adult education. That adult education is going to be, in the main, very focused around skills and jobs, rather than what perhaps comes earlier. But as with all of these issues about longer life, we always think it's about what happens later. But if you do things different later, you need to do things different earlier. So if I know throughout my life, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time getting educated. Perhaps I don't need to go to university for three years now. Perhaps I might just go for a year and go along 10 or 15 years later. So for me, I think this is a really, really key area. And there's different types of education. There's learning skills. There's finding yourself and your who you are and what your values and meeting others around you. And then I think there's just sort of a personal growth. And you're going to see an education system that scatters trying to deal with all of those things, and which isn't just focused on people aged under 21. And again, if you look at what's happening with COVID, you're going to see universities really desperate for new markets. And if you start looking at the adult education market, it's huge. I was talking to the previous dean of continuing education at Harvard. And he said last year, the continuing education college at Harvard enrolled more students than the rest of Harvard put together. And of course, if you think of lifelong learning, it's much bigger market than just 18 to 21 year olds. So this is an absolute revolution that's going to happen. But there's a bunch of questions there. How do we do adult education? Because it's different from learning early on. Secondly, it requires changes in what you learn at the beginning, because if you're going to spend a lifetime learning, you spend less time learning specific things early on and more learning how to learn. And then, of course, the really huge challenge is how do we roll this out at scale to everyone? Because right now, education tends to be preserved for those who have lots of education. So this is the, the huge challenge I think society faces in response to longevity and technology. So you, you talk about this as, as a way of staying ahead of technology, which I I feel is a hopeful thing, but I think we've all read books that have a rather more pessimistic view of the forthcoming robot apocalypse. I mean, how can we ever avoid the situation where the exponential growth of all of these different aspects of technology means that we do, in the words of your book, become the pets of super intelligent robots? What do you think about that, Linda? There is an enormous technological agenda ahead of us. Many of us are in jobs where at least 60% of what we do can be automated. And so we have to learn how to upskill and reskill. And that's really something that uh, is hard to do. But we have to really focus on and we have to focus on it from a number of angles. The first is, as individuals, we have to think about how do I upskill in my current job, i.e. move to the parts of my job that uh, AI or robots can't do and really, really focus on that? Or possibly, how do I reskill to a completely different job? You know, how do I move from one category of job, which is likely to be highly automated, to another category of job, which isn't going to be? And that really requires two things for all of us. One is 
We need to know something about the future of jobs. And secondly, we need the time and the resources actually to upskill. And both of those are pro- problematic right now. I mean, how would I, as a, as, as a citizen in the UK, for example, know whether my job is going to be automated or not? And secondly, how do I, therefore, if I know it's going to be automated, make that leap? That's a real agenda for governments. You know, governments need to to provide some sort of signalling to individuals about how they think the job market is going to change. But they also need to make massive investments in reskilling so that the population can absolutely be ready for the future. Of course, there's also an educational uh, agenda there. As Andrew said earlier, how do we be sure that our education system is capable of supporting us right the way through our life? But there's also a very important role for corporations. One of the the questions that comes to mind with this, it's fine that we can educate ourselves to move to new areas, upskill, and use this metaphor of the rising waters of technology lapping at our feet. So we have to go to higher ground. But what happens when we're all perched on the same mountaintop and the waters are still coming up at our feet? I mean, at some point, robots just become better than us. We, we have this experience of the Industrial Revolution where we discovered that automation just gave us better and easier and better paid jobs. But eventually, that logic surely runs so I out. It's, I mean, so this is a big worry, technology. But technology isn't destiny. Most economists would tell you there's different channels through which technology works. It destroys jobs. It creates jobs. And the biggest challenge with technology is we can see the jobs that will be destroyed easier than we can see the jobs that will be created. But undoubtedly, we need to worry about this because the, you know, the market on its own doesn't take care of this. But you know, it goes back to saying earlier, if machines are becoming better at being machines, humans will always have a comparative advantage in being humans. And increasingly, it's going to be those human skills where the jobs will be. Some of that will be about relating and caring and dealing with people and face-to-face. Others will be about that sort of, you know, creating hypothesis and testing them. So there will be a range of activities. And the caring one, I think, is really interesting because we all need to care for people a lot more. But, you know, there's not a finite number of jobs unless you think there's a finite lesser set of human needs. And I don't think there is. But I do think there are three really key things we've got to do to make sure that technology doesn't have terrible effects on the labour market. And in particular, we want to make sure the agenda isn't driven by companies. And I think the three things that we've got to try and get governments to do, we talked a lot about education. That's, of course, creating people with the skills for the new jobs. The second thing we've got to do is to create jobs to match people's skills, because not everyone will be able to upgrade. And it's going to be very interesting after COVID, for instance, where you're going to see a lot of demand for you know, physical delivery jobs, as it were, which may not be particularly high-skilled roles. But the third thing that is absolutely key is we've got to give firms an incentive to use technology to augment humans' performance at work rather than just have machines replace people. And we know, for instance, that if machines and people work together, they're more productive than if either of them works on their own. And we've got to make sure we don't have a tax system that leads to people getting rid of workers and replacing it with cheaper technology, which, to be honest, doesn't provide a good service. I find that most of the technology I interact with with firms is not providing me with a better service. Like when I phone some robot on the phone, it's just cheap. It's not a better service. So we really need to create a set of policy initiatives that provide firms with the incentive to augment 
what people do. And that's, you know, that's why we work best with technology. Interesting, the first stage industrial revolution was a bit more automation based, replacing jobs. The second stage was much more about augmenting workers. And that has to be the way forward. So in terms of how companies should change, you talk in your book to, about something that to me feels like something of a, a marvellous utopia, the idea of far more flexible working, uh, most of us maybe even doing four-day weeks, a lot more working at home, a uh, lot more of an idea that both men and women share the childcare and get equal parental leave. And it all sounds great, but Linda, how do we... How do we go about achieving this? How do I actively persuade my own company for whom this appears not necessarily to be in its interests that indeed it is? You know, many of our thinking about productivity is based on the Industrial Revolution, you know, factory work. So how how good is somebody? Well, it depends on how many hours they've worked. And you, they can sit in, you can sit in a factory and you can watch people on a conveyor belt and say, you've worked so many hours. Much of the, the work that's done in the UK isn't that type of work. And so, you know, it's much more difficult to ask, well, where does productivity come from? Why would it be that I'm a higher performer than somebody else? And that's where we realise that people's, the way that people feel about the work, their work, the way they feel about themselves, the amount of learning that they've got are all going to play absolutely crucial roles. And so, we know from research that people who work very long hours, for example, aren't necessarily more productive. In fact, if anything, there's evidence that when people have breaks, they, they're more productive. So a lot of evidence that flexible work is a good idea. Secondly, we know that commuting is an incredible strain on the planet, on individuals, on corporations. So working from home, if it's done right, is a very good idea. We know that families are a hugely important part of our society and the stability within those is important. So how do we how do corporations support families? What is why would they do that? Well, because in supporting families, they're supporting societies and they're, they're building a purpose that goes beyond simply, you know, the provision of revenues. And I think that you know, more and more companies are seeing this sort of broader purpose as being at the centre of their, uh, their their strategy for the future. It's very interesting, Tom, that if you take a look at how corporations went into this pandemic, those who had employees who trusted them, who felt that their work was good, who had consumers that tr- trusted them, have fared much better. The ones who are really you know, finding it hard at the moment were those who went into the pandemic feeling that trust was low, that they were purposeless companies. So it's in everybody's interest for corporations to support people to be lifelong learners, to help them to narrate a world, a life which has some purpose to them, and also that helps them support their families and then communities that are, that they're a member of. But I mean, I go back to the beginning. I think, you know, Linda's given a good answer about why corporates should and need to, and some of them will. This goes back to what we want as a society. We shouldn't just wait for firms to do it. With the Industrial Revolution, we went from a six-day week to a five-day week. 
and trade unions were key in bringing that about. Firms weren't terribly keen on it. But you know, we've also seen uh, gender equality in, uh, in terms of employment and wages, the huge inequality that used to exist. It's still there, but it's less than it used to be. So there is the possibility for change. It may have to come through legislation as well as firms responding. I think you could argue that actually the flexible working agenda is going to be given a boost by COVID because you've got firms looking to probably cut their real estate costs. So they're probably happier for you to work from home. You're going to have flexible working as we come back from COVID. And we do have a technology that supports more flexible working. And that's key because one of the reasons we have this big divide in terms of work, you know, who has a career and who cares, uh, cares for people is that the the wage for part-time workers or flexible working is much less than full-time working. And that leads to a very big divide in households. But if the penalty for flexible work narrows because of a new technology, then we will see further moves towards that equality. And what does this mean for my retirement as I stare down the barrel of 100 years and uh, my forefathers would have had 35 of those sitting around going on cruise liners and maybe catching COVID on cruise liners and dying prematurely. But how do we change that from what you describe as a a cold shower to a a warm bath? In a sense, this is part of the whole reimagination of life. It's part of the whole of the new narrative. You know, the idea of suddenly jumping from full-time work to full-time retirement, most people don't want to do that anyway. But corporations have played a role in terms of ageism, of forcing people out. We think that that really has to change and that corporations have to feel much more confident about employing people right the way through into their 70s. And I think that more and more people, as they as they become healthier for longer, they want to be active members of their corporations, of their societies. And so the idea of what a job is doesn't have to be one where making a wage is at the centre of it. It could also be one where supporting a community is also at the centre. And of course, your great grandparents and great great grandparents uh, wouldn't have had 35 years in retirement when retirement was introduced it was way above the average life expectancy so that's kind of i think that the challenge we've got and then if we do have this extra time when do you want to spend it and you know you know in this conversation tom you've got children at home you're trying to look after family and work and then right at the end you're gonna have 35 years why not take some of those years now but of course it goes back to that point that is almost every age well literally every age you got more time ahead of you than your parents' generation did. And so that need to be more forward-looking is really important. But that's quite a daunting task because it means you've got to be keep thinking about investing in your finances, investing in your skills, investing in your relationships, and finding that sense of purpose. But perhaps that's ultimately the real benefit of this longer life we face. We will sort of, it's kind of, there's a sort of whiff of Buddhism about the whole thing. It's sort of, you know, as life gets longer and longer, then actually you have more chances to keep pushing yourself forward and changing who you are and developing. I think the real challenge for me with these long lives is to make sure that that's the sort of the vision that comes out rather than one that existing inequalities, initial inequalities, just accumulate over time. So you get this growing inequality as life gets longer. Okay, well, let me let me sort of confront the perhaps ageist view of this and, and definitely come from a non-Buddhist <laughs> perspective. Um, so I, I, I studied mathematics at university. We were told that 
if you hadn't achieved anything by 25 and certainly by 30 there was little point in you your your brain was very much defunct by then i'm i'm now just sort of poutering about in my mediocrity post the age of 30 and it's only going to get worse uh, so do we really want a labor market that's dominated by people in cognitive de- decline There's no evidence, Tom, that you're in cognitive decline. In fact, if anything, you know, the the crystallized intelligence that you've learned, all the things that you've learned since you left university, that the wisdom, the accumulated wisdom that you've got really positions you very well to do the human type work. You know, one of the interesting things about technology, of course, is that it simply takes what it knows. But the marvel of being a human, as you found, Tom, for yourself, is that you've accumulated knowledge, you've accumulated insights, you've seen the world, and that wisdom can be extremely interesting and important to a corporation. So let's just think uh, differently about how what our intelligence is, and also differently about how we accumulate that intelligence over time. And just a bit, I mean, I have got some bad news, you tell me, you're probably not going to make it as a Fields Medal winner in mathematics. So you're quite right. In that sense, the uh, the age effect works. But, you know, as Linda says, what the evidence suggests is that there's no one age where you're best at everything in terms of your full range of personal skills. So, you know, those 25-year-old mathematicians, those 19-year-old mathematicians, they might be brilliant at maths, but some of their other personal skills may not be so great. And then as they get older, those other personal skills get stronger. And even if the maths comes down. So this is kind of where you start to switch and shift. And, you know, I get the point about, you know, will I have some skills that are relevant? And of course, you've got to keep working on that. But, in you know, and I hate age stereotypes, but in general, you find that, you know, the skills of empathy, ego gets less, which is great for teamwork in companies. So, you know, older workers are better at that. Also, as the consumer gets older, older workers are better at understanding those older consumers. So, you know, there does seem to be this pattern of, you know, what you're good at shifts and morphs over time. And then, of course, the other thing, which I think is really interesting, and by the way, I'm 54, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not in total decline, but I've got to recognize that some things will get better and some will get weaker. But the happiness scores are really interesting. If you tend to look at happiness over the lifetime, People, as they get into their 70s and 80s, tend to be happier, much happier than people in their 40s and, um, and midlife. So that's kind of an interesting reflection because so many people fear age, but the data suggests on average it's actually one of their happier times in life. I think to end this and maybe to sum it up, we are, it was ever thus, but it is increasingly so. We're in an age of, of massive change. My children, who hopefully we haven't heard too much of this um, outside the door, are six, four and zero. So they're the ones who are just on the cusp of beginning the first stage of the old three-stage life. How do you see their future? What, take me through the life path of a boy born now who will hopefully see the world that you're talking about come to be. So, Tom, one of your sons, what sort of a life will he have? Well, we don't know that. But what we can say is that he has many possibilities ahead of him. He can explore those possibilities at any point in time if he's building the skills uh, and the networks and the, the experiences. He can become 
many different things at many points in his life. One of the ways we think about this is to is this notion of possible self. At any point you think about what are the three or four completely different possible paths that I could take. So he doesn't need to follow your path. He can actually find his own path. Because he's going to live a long life, we hope, then he can take many pathways and in doing so, he can explore many parts of himself. And at the center of that will be his own resilience, both as an individual and indeed of the resilience of his relationships. He could have a marvelous life ahead of him, Tom. That's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's interesting you also said about it, your son. I mean, I don't know if you've got three boys, but I hope the difference between the son and the daughter will be less pronounced than it has been in the past. But, you know, according to the ONS, one in five girls born last year will live to be a hundred. So that means that your children have to plan for the 22nd century, which is a pretty staggering thought. Uh, and of course there's massive uncertainty. I couldn't even tell you what's going to happen in the next three months, let alone the next a hundred years. But I think we can see some things that are going to be key. But the first, and as Linda says, when you've got more time, you don't need to commit so quickly. You don't need to rush. And I think that's really important because options therefore become much more important. So exploring becomes more valuable. And I think for me as a parent, one of the struggles I've faced is thinking my children will be living the same life as mine, which they just won't. Um, and, you know, taking the milestones of life are going to shift. We've got an extended adolescence was invented in the 20th century. Teenagers were invented. And now we're seeing the 20s be extended when people make adult commitments now are much more in their 30s in terms of when they have to start their career or take a job. So it's going to be a different pace. It will be multi-staged. It'll also be a lot more intergenerational, partly because there's just fewer people of your children's age around. They're going to exist in a society with a lot more older people of all sorts of different ages. And then if we do go back to that sort of long career path, um, it's unlikely to be in one profession. It's unlikely to be in one job or firm. So those multiple stages then mean what defines that your child's life. And in a way, I think that'll be what the point of the multi-stage life is. What are the values that connect up what I do at each stage in my life? And that's going to be a much more important role, I think, for that generation than, say, my parents' generation who at 14 were working and already had their identity and their purpose nailed down. Linda, Andrew, thank you very much for a... a hopeful view of the future which is particularly wonderful at this time the book is the new long life a framework for flourishing in a changing world thank you thank you tom thank you tom